Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast, as always with our good friends at True Plant. Our guest this week is somebody that's got uh, a body of work that is uh, genuinely outstanding um, from being the first woman to report and present uh, on motorsport, two and four wheels, not many people have done that, uh, fashion reporting at Royal Ascot, uh, numerous appearances on mainstream television from the question of sport to the one show, eggheads, pointless. I mean, it's a very impressive long list. And uh, I do hope that we can try and cover as much of it as we possibly can today. It's, uh, it's with great delight that we welcome Susie Perry to our podcast. Hi, Susie. Hey, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for How doing that, Susie. Thank you for joining us. It's great. It, it's a pleasure. Thanks for the cracking intro. Um, <laughs> I got stuck on pointless because I was thinking, yeah, how pointless is it? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's great to join you both. I don't, I've got to be honest, I don't really like doing podcasts, so I, I'm quite picky. We're honoured. So, yeah. you know. We're honoured. Yeah. took some time to come <laughs> back to us, you know. There was some weak excuse about being in France, and I thought, yeah, France, not too bad being in France. But, hey, we'll, 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 we'll cover that over. We'll move on. We'll, <laughs> we can accept that. But I think the burning question is, Susan, we've got to start from this. And mm. having that, had a look, little look at your bio, um, you like going to see live music and you like eating curry, but we yeah. want to know. We want to know what is your favourite dish at the curry house. That's the important question. Ah, oh, right. Well, that would be um, a vegetable del frazi. <sighs> Ooh, uh, uh, interesting choice. How, how does that reflect on on her character, Nigel? What do you think? You know, del um... is middle ground. It's 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 a safe <laughs> option. It's very tasty, uh, particularly with the vegetables. Yeah, as well. I, that that would be. That middle ground, nothing too risky, very tasty, and 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 and, and a very classy choice, Susan. Particularly if you're in the dill study. It's classy. There's definitely a mind for them next morning because probably a busy lady will probably consider that. Yes. Uh, by sitting down fairly late in the evening to eat a curry, feeling that she needs to be able to function the next day. So it's all good. We're, we're cool with that. We're all cool with they that. Do, I've got a, they do a mean. Uh, Vegetable, vegetable gel frazy at the Dill Shad in Wolverhampton. That's where she gets it from. Well, I'll tell you something about the Dill Shad in Wolverhampton. I used to go there when I was 15 and I worked in the Grand Theatre, which is opposite yes. to that restaurant. So we would be in there at one, two, three o'clock in the morning eating. <laughs> um, and, and back in the day, probably would have gone with the chicken gel frazy because I did used to eat meat then and um, I don't anymore. But yeah, there's loads of good curry houses, obviously, in Wolverhampton. So I did grow up on a staple diet of uh, of hot food and uh, and middle ground food as Nigel so rightly says middle ground food it was and uh, it proved to be uh, quite a menu for you that pushed you on because I want to talk to you about straight away about something that's been going on very recently for you during the lockdown and I think it's wise that we talk about it because it's affected everybody nobody's missed it and it's this breakfast club on Instagram I sense that's something that um, you've really put a lot of passion into in the last few weeks um, I have, and I, I'm sort of trying now talking to you is almost retrospective because obviously we've been doing it for what three and a half, four months. Yes. Um, it, it was born out of the fact that I felt a bit useless, really, because a lot of my friends are nurses and they're on the front line and doing things, and I thought, oh, broadcaster, rubbish, can't help out, <laughs> um, self employed. And then there was a day, and I think it was the day that Boris went into hospital with COVID 19, that everybody suddenly felt uncertain more uncertain and it affected somebody that we all knew and he was younger you know he wasn't in his 70s and I think that 
Um, a lot of people were very scared, a lot of people living and isolating alone. And it just felt like that day I tweeted something and I got all this sort of love back. And I thought, you know what? I think people need maybe a bit of a familiar face to just chat with. So that's how the Breakfast Club started. And it just started live on Instagram with me taking questions, telling stories. <laughs> Boring. Uh, <laughs> and, um, uh, and no, you know, people were loving it. And then I got friends to join, guests, and then it sort of really took off with the guests. And then people started saying, oh, you know, do you think you can get David Coulthard? Do you think you can get Jack Savaretti? Do you think you can get whoever? Um, Ty Wuffenden. And um, I just reached out to to loads of different people and I was really surprised that they all said yes and they all came on and it was great because we had this hour to be able to get beneath the skin of what you normally can do on an interview because of course on telly we never have time do we apart from to ask the obvious no. questions and no, it's that's... it's been fascinating and, and as a sort of journalist broadcaster it's been really fulfilling for me as well to be able to interview these people and, and be really nosy, be a nosy old cow. Um, <laughs> and um, But also, you know, I know I get lovely messages from people saying how much they look forward to it and how it's sort of helped them on a daily basis. And some really actually a lot of messages that have made me cry because you don't realise, you know, that a lot of people um, suffering anxiety, loneliness, um, depression and and these kind of chats can can get people through a day so it's yeah. been it's actually been you know quite inspiring for, for for me as well to you know to to realize that and it's been great I've learned loads about loads of different people so yeah it's been really fun so I'm doing it once a week now I'm going to continue it um, for a while and um, to see where it goes well done well done I, it does change people's mentality and um, I've had good days and bad days but like you say we're a broadcaster we can't help um but also silly little things like my parents are still alive, thankfully. And, mm. I, and it's made me contact them every day, whether it be a call or a text message or pop round for a, a visit for, on, the, on the driveway while they're at the front door. Uh, and it's, it's virtually been every day since this happened in mid-March that I've made contact with my parents. And really, when I look back, I should have been doing that every day anyway in, in, in the, the, the pre-COVID world. So it does change your mentality, doesn't it? I think that's the thing. You've hit the nail on the head there, really. Um, maybe we are reassessing our priorities and taking a step back. And we all get so busy with our lives and work and we're on the hamster wheel. And, you know, a lot of it is a, is a bit of a waste of time. We can do things in a much more time efficient way if we plan it a bit better. And this time, I think, has made us realise that, you know, talking to people, to family members, to friends, spending time noticing things, just taking a breather, doing the exercise that we should be doing on a daily basis it's really important and we should yes. be doing it yeah. so you know the work stuff it should come second to living that's why we yeah. should be working in order to live not the other way around and also uh forgive me for interrupting Kel, but on a serious note here as well i, I will say this you know i come over as bull and brash on the tv and on the radio loud do you Nigel? yeah loud loud <laughs> you know mate, you know, mate home, i've worked yeah. with you for nearly 20 years yes. so i've noticed yes yes but but let me tell you, I don't mind admitting now, right, that pre-COVID-19, I had a fear of failure. I hated turning work down because I feared that I would lose that work forever. They'd no, never come back and, and ask me again. I took every bit of work I possibly could. could. Um, I may have been greedy, but it was through fear of losing work. Now, mm. I've lost work during this shutdown. 
and, I, and, I, and I'm going to lose more work going forward. But you know what? Am I worried about it? Am I anxious about it? No, because I'm over it all. I'm over it all. And my perspective has definitely changed now. I think that's really good. I mean, that's a self-employed um, way of thinking. I, I yeah. also can completely relate to that. You know, I mean, there has been years. Um, I've burnt myself out at different periods of the last 25 years. I mean, completely. Yes. Um, I felt like I could take on as much work, as you say, you know, as possible. I was running all over the world, doing different championships, writing, uh, guesting on different shows, putting in that first and creating a career and trying to prove myself, really, I suppose, which is um, something that we all have inherently within us. But um, if any emotional things came in, like normal life that went wrong, I just, you know, couldn't deal with it. And um, it would just spin me over the edge. And of course, those things happen because that's life. Mm -hmm. So you have to make space for that. And I think what you're what you're doing is probably making space for other things to happen. And you can't invite new things into your life either, unless you have space for them. So I think it's it's really good sometimes to, you know, to say no to something you don't really want to do. I mean, obviously, we've all got bills to pay. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got to do that. But, you know, how much money do you need to be able to survive and live a really nice life? I think that's the big question, isn't it, really? Yeah, great show. It's an interesting point, and I think that the reset button has been pushed a wee bit in this lockdown period. And I, I think, um, you know, in, in my family, my sister's been a very hard-working in the banking environment, and I know that she's going to change her life moving forward because she's just been a workaholic, and it's just been focused on that. So... I think it's quite widespread that that attitude, and you're absolutely right. The self-employed. I would just quickly just you know remember riding. I, I would never turn a booking down. You know, <laughs> and you would never turn a booking down. You love the ones in the Midlands, though, didn't you? You love those especially. <laughs> I, I during the Midlands period, what how I would state it is that it was it was some of the best racing I did. <laughs> Uh, and it was a very convenient part of the world to be living. Um, but <laughs> that was it. When that period was over, I did move back to my spiritual home. Moving swiftly on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was a great time. It was a great time. Right. Uh, lockdown. Instagram. Fantastic. I like that. I love the fact that you, you, you were inspired to do something and not feel useless. And I think it's brilliant. And quite clearly, the response you had with the people coming on, suggests that you uh, you touched the right button there. Um, you were a model um, and you became a media reporter person. When you were dashing around the world as, as a young lady, a very attractive young lady, was that the time when you thought, I want to do something? I want to report on motorsport. How did that happen from that transition? Um, I think I never really was supposed to be a model. Um, it, it, just, it was a sort of accident. It was a lovely accident, really. I was at uh, I was at Polytechnic doing my business degree. I was also working at the theatre um, in the, in the sort of behind the scenes stage department, follow spot operator, electric stuff like that. So I was, I was really busy at, at university. Well, it was at university. It was Polytechnic then, um, and I was doing a business degree, and I wanted to go into music promotion. And I had, obviously had to pay my way and stuff like that. And I started to do a bit of modelling on the side. And it was so easy. I loved it. Obviously, I couldn't believe anybody was paying me to have my picture taken. And right. it just sort of <laughs> snowballed, really. And I, I fell into this category of attractive girl next door, which sounds really boring and middle ground. However, it had so much work in that genre that, you know, people were 
paying me to turn up and stand there and smile. And I mean, honestly, really, how how easy is that? It, it was such a great life. I got to travel a lot. I did loads of holiday brochures and things like that. At one point, my dad came back. He said, I've just been in Lumpoli. You're on six covers of different holiday. I didn't know which one to look at. Um, <laughs> it, you know, I, I, I just got really lucky with it. I worked really hard as well. But um, I went all over the world. I lived in Japan for nearly a year working over there. So I did loads of advertising and, um, and I, you know, to be honest, I earned really good money and I bought myself a little flat in London and uh, it, was, it was really great. And I worked with cracking people and we had such a laugh because it wasn't um, high pressure. It wasn't the, the runway world of cutthroat, you know, everyone's eating rye beaters and taking right. cocaine and stuff to keep their weight down. It wasn't like that. It was just very much we were the people next door that advertisers wanted in their brochure to look like everybody you know um mm-hmm. so it wasn't glamorous but it paid really well and I, and I, I enjoyed it but it got to the point where i was sort of 25 26 where they were putting me in the young mum category Ooh. and i was like i'm done with this now <laughs> <laughs> but it quite clearly gave you a great grounding in and and in, in well obviously being able to earn a living becoming independent traveling the world in itself is a great education Absolutely. Yeah, completely. It, it it really did. And I got to do some incredible things, meet amazing people, travel to loads of different places, have all sorts of experiences. And, you know, I felt like in my early 20s that the, the world was my oyster, you know, that I could do. When I came back from Japan, it was such a change from Wolverhampton, unsurprisingly, <laughs> that I, I really genuinely felt buoyed by that. And I went to live in London and... It was great, you know, it was the heady days, it was the early 90s, I was going to all these gigs and I I lived in a place called Belsize Park, which is full of uh, musicians and artists and uh, my godfather at at the time was Mel Galley, he used to be in Whitesnake and he introduced me to loads of people and like I found myself sitting in the Chinese in Camden, sitting next to John Bon Jovi, you know, and he's showing me his baby (laughs) pictures. I mean, I was 23 years old, life was heaven, I was earning money, it was brilliant, you know, it was really good and I was really happy with what I was doing and it was really fun and then I sort of just came to the end of the road of that and at that time in my mid-twenties, I was... um, with my future first husband who was a biker and we all used to go and watch British Superbikes and we'd go on the bikes you know and we um we loved it and we watched World Superbikes every other weekend on the telly and Grand Prix and we we were just obsessed with the racing you know absolutely obsessed with it and I did my bike test because I just got a bit fed up of being the backpack on the, as, a, as a pillion and mm. uh, just you know became obsessed with biking really I'd watched it as growing up and and loved the thrill of watching it my brother had a bike and stuff but I came to it sort of relatively late I suppose and, mm. um so my friends got a bit sick of me sitting at home shouting at the telly game, why don't they do this? Why don't they do that? Which is what everybody does when they watch sport, of course. We're all armchair um, commentators. Experts, exactly. We we all know that feeling. So I ended up ringing Sky and I got through to the great guru of television, Martin Turner at Sky. Okay. And he, he said, why don't you come in and have a chat with me? Who are you? And I said, I'm nobody. I'm just a bike fan. So I went in and I took this really rubbish tape that I'd made um and we chatted and I showed him what I'd done and he ripped it apart and he said yeah you know this you should it should have been like this you should have asked this question or but he said I can see that you've got a love for the sport and an affinity and uh, an inquiring mind 
do you want a job as a reporter? Well, I nearly fell off my chair. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. I mean, it, you know, things like that just don't happen, do they? And so yeah. I walked out, 1997 this was, I walked out of Sky Sports offices with a reporter job tucked underneath my arm, under my crisp white shirt and my brown leather trousers at the time. <laughs> it was very, very, <laughs> nice. very nice. nice. Take you back to the speedway then. Um, <laughs> so that's, that was my big break in television, really. And then um, I, I did a couple of races that year, did two or three races of World Superbike. And it was the following year that Sky took on Speedway. So when I started uh, in Speedway, I was a really cub junior reporter and um, quite naive and clueless, but, you know, full of life and full of running. Energy on tap. Yeah. And- and uh, that was obvious because as you came into it, was, it was the relaunch of Speedway in the late 90s for, uh, onto television. And there was lots of excitement. Um, it was fairly chaotic. Um, and quite clearly, yes, the, crew, the, the, crew, the crew coming in from Sky hadn't got a clue. Um, and uh, it was all a bit of guessing by God. But just give us a bit of an indication because obviously I was still competing at the time and I yeah. didn't have to work on it. But... From your view, how, how did you see that and how did you cope with it all? Well, obviously, it's very exciting for me because they're offering me, you know, another series to do and more television hours, which I saw as really great experience. Um, but I had to work. I was told I had to work with Jonathan Green. Now, Greeny was a brilliant reporter, um, but we were pitted against each other in World Superbike the year before. And we didn't like each other. We didn't get on. You know, there was that whole competitive thing between the two of us. I thought I'd got something and then Jonathan would pop up on the television. He'd be talking about it and I'd be so annoyed. And I think, you know, because we had to fight for our airtime as well. We had to come up with really good nuggets of gold to get down to the pit lane away from Keith Ewan in the studio. So... We were both scurrying around. Not that bad, is it, Keith? Not that bad? Ah, no, no. But you know what it's like when you're trying to you field yourself and prove yourself as a, as a reporter. You want yeah. to come up with the cracking interviews. You want to yeah. get little bits of information yeah. that nobody knew. So we were both mining for that kind of stuff, for TV gold, really. And Jonathan was excellent. You know, he was such a great broadcaster, walking, talking, giving you the chat. You know, you couldn't shut Greeny up. You know what he's like. So, uh, but very good, you know, technically very, very good. Um, and we, we just hated each other. So Rory Hopkins, the producer of, of um, the Speedway, made us sit down in a pub together and get drunk because Johnny was supposed to, well, Johnny was going to be the presenter and I was going to be the reporter. So we absolutely had to get on because it's a nightmare if you don't get on with who you're working with. It's just chaos. Mm. And don't I know it. I'm doing a podcast with a sub now. Do you know what? So many people that you see on air don't get on. But you think they do, oh, but they don't. I'm not joking. We do. I, I know you two do, but I just other but, other but pairings. Actually, we, we have a similar story in the fact that when we first met, when when Nigel was a young reporter and I was still riding, we didn't. To be honest, I don't think there was a, a great love between us. And I remember when Nigel was actually announced that he was going to join the Sky Speedway team, wasn't overjoyed. Wasn't well, overjoyed. Su- 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 Susie had done the right thing. She'd gone by then. Yeah. <laughs> Hey. With Jonathan. It's really interesting, Jonathan, because obviously I, I worked with, with Jonathan for yeah. some time. Uh, and, you know, he was he was bubbly, enthusiastic, energy, but 
he was looking for the scoop. There's no doubt. Excuse me, Nigel. He was always looking for the scoop, wasn't he? And he always wanted to be the first to the punch. Well, that's the thing, you know. And the thing about Green is he starts at 100 miles an hour. And he just stays at 100 miles an hour for the whole show. Most people will start, come in about 60, you know, go, go up a few gears, reach 100 towards the end of the show. Not Green, he's straight in, 100 miles an hour. Here we go, right. bang. And I think, um, you know, he did a great job. But he still, in his head, had... The, the key that he was that he was the reporter and he still wanted to find those things out of course that is the reporter's job to come yeah. to the studio with all this gold and then the people in the studio discuss it that's how it's supposed to work but yeah you're right you know Greeny quite liked to have the uh the scoop himself <laughs> yeah. um, but, but if you think about it when you go back it it was genius of of Rory Hopkins with what he did. I mean, yeah, we didn't have a clue what we were doing, that is true. But <laughs> Rory knew that if he put a, a pop-up studio, which looked like an un, an upside-down pair of underpants, uh, if you remember. It did. It did. And after a couple of seasons, there were a few skid marks on that. Underpants. Oh! <laughs> oh, dear me! Lordy, lower the tone, Kelv. Um, Goodness me. I was the one that had to stand underneath it. I know Rory used to love it. <laughs> <laughs> These two two fellas out there standing underneath a pair of dirty underpants. I'm sure he got off on that. Oh, he would do. Absolutely. Melvin Hopkins, he would. Get on with it. You, you know, are. so the, for, for anybody listening to this now, <laughs> the guy that we're talking about, Rory Hopkins, I still hear him in my ear when wow. I'm yeah, yeah when I'm broadcasting <laughs> because he he was such a brilliant producer. He would constantly be saying to me, where's the story? Where's the story? Soon go get the story. You know, and he, he was talking to me all the time we were on air. And he was teaching me. And it sounds a bit weird, but it's, it was such great training for me. Um, and some of the things that happened in Speedway, my God, when I, was, when, when I knew I was going to talk to you, I've been thinking back to some of the live situations. Because, of course, Rory had me running onto the track where... You know, you guys were lying down having crashed out, and I've got to stick my microphone under your nose and say what happened. I mean, for goodness sake, yeah. it was absolutely ridiculous, but it was TV gold, and that was it the was, genius was, yeah. of what Hopkins did. You know, he brought yeah. this, he got an expert rider, he got Greeny going at 100 miles an hour in the studio, he got me running around in a pair of tight leather trousers. I mean, let's be honest, it worked. It did work, and people mm. loved it, didn't they? And yeah. oh, I still yeah. get asked about it now, and it was over 20 years ago, which is yeah. quite extraordinary. And we It sort was of... extraordinary, and it was an exciting time. And as I say, there wasn't a lot of guidance, but I guess that was the genius of Mr Hopkins, because he kind of... He sat there and he allowed you to do stuff. Occasionally, you'd get screamed at and shouted at. The talk. What do you mean, occasional? People got fired. We need to go to a break. Shut up. Yeah. He's forty-five. Yeah, he forty-five. There was a few of them on air. I do remember that. Do you remember in? Um, it was Eastbourne, wasn't it? That fight with Martin. I was in and the race. Stephanie. I was yeah. in the race. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable, and it was all over the sun the next day. I well, that's Phil Lanning, of course, because. I was yeah. To, uh, and it was like a three set, uh, three pictures across the Sun uh, newspaper. And really? I was in having breakfast in, in Heathrow the next morning, flying to Sweden. And there were guys talking, do you see the speedway last night? And that bloke chinned the other fella and he landed on the toolbox. I mean, wow. I mean, that really did set the world alight. Uh, do you know what? You... Well, so it was, so it was Martin... Martin Dugard. Martin Dugard. And what was the other lad's Stephen name? Anderson. Stephen Anderson. Stephen, Stephen that's Anderson. right. But they were living together at the time. Weren't they really good friends? <laughs> yeah, they, 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 uh, actually, Stephen Anderson was living with Martin's father. 
<laughs> right. So this, I mean, this is classic Speedway right here. This story, I think. So there's a coming, a coming together on the track, as happens always in Speedway. Obviously, she deaf because have got no brakes. So um, there's this anger going on. Stefan stormed back to the. He's already stormed back to the. Um, the pits and martin's walking back and i'm next to martin of course i've got rory hopkins in my head going stay with him stay with him Sue's. keep him in the back of shop keep talking what's happening what can you see what's he saying and so i'm i'm doing all of this i'm walking and then he goes don't get too close <laughs> <laughs> As I get to the pits because he knows what's going to happen and then there's this whole fisticuffs stefan lands at, does hit his head on the tour bus i mean it could have been really bloody nasty actually yes. and um and it's all on camera and then of course it's in sky because phil lanning is such a massive speedway fan obviously with his dad's history growing up with it and everything and uh yeah the, the, that's how the coverage sort of unrolled didn't it and it suited sky obviously that kind of thing and it grew and you know there was loads of stories like that and then you've got your characters and you've got stoney and you've got alan ross's i mean roscoe how funny was he always arguing with the ref always wanting to give me a kiss on the cheek. I mean, it was just comedy, wasn't it, in the 90s? Well, Alan, bless his cotton socks, he wasn't the greatest speedway rider in the world. Um, he wasn't the worst either, but he did like a fall off, particularly when you were about, because he knew that at least he'd get <laughs> Good old Roscoe. Fantastic. But quite clearly, that I think, it, to be perfectly honest, those Sky days, I didn't have a clue about television either. But I think it was a great grounding. I think now, when we have a few dramas, particularly when things go wrong, I don't, I don't panic at all. No. Because I, I just feel that with that experience of working through those early years, stands you in really good stead. Whatever scenario you're in, I don't know if you agree with that. Well, I do. And I... I... I believe that that comes from your grounding with Rory Hopkins because he let us have the time and he didn't put pressure on us. And I've worked with producers that do put pressure on you and that say the meanest things in your head. Like even in recent years, I've had someone say to me, don't smile. I don't like it when you smile. And I'm talking to six million people on the BBC <laughs> at the time. You know what well, I mean? Why uh, for me that's bullying and yeah. you know I didn't have that with with Rory in my ear um and and I and I think that when you panic on screen it's uncomfortable so uncomfortable for people to watch at home it really is so if you just let things happen they're going to happen anyway just say what you see it's not that hard and no. if you're interviewing someone just listen to what they're saying you don't have to have a list of questions you could just ask them one and roll with it that's yeah. what I've was taught to do and that's always been my style really i suppose it's funny i spoke to rory this week he rang me because um plans are in place for future darts tournaments and uh, as a consequence of my involvement with speedway rory gave me a chance on the darts and i'm still working for him to this day and he it doesn't change he's the same old rory susie you'll be delighted to hear <laughs> i do get messages from him periodically really sweet messages actually you might be shocked to hear um uh, <laughs> i didn't realize he's got a sweet bone in his he has he's got a very sweet side to him he's got a com very comedic sweet side to him um the darts another revelation at sky i mean yeah. honestly the co the coverage and the following that that sport has is yeah. exceptional isn't it it's such a good job oh, with that really yeah brilliant fun. and again you know rory martin turner uh, andy finn the director yeah. back in the day you know all these guys have got to take great credit that because they have been such a part of it every bit as much as sid waddell 
um, Phil the Power Taylor, you know, the Sky crew, I'm not just saying this because I'm still with them, but the fact of the matter is that Sky Sports um, reinvented darts with Barry Hearn, with the PDC, and mm. and the, the team that you worked with, and I still do, uh, have, have certainly played their part in that. Well, look, television shows are a jigsaw puzzle of ingredients, really, aren't they? I've mixed my metaphors there, but you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. And the people in front of the camera are a very small, tiny part of the production. The big mm. weight is behind the camera, and there's also a lot of egos on the other side of the camera as well. Um, no. You no. know... <laughs> So, but it all has to it all has to work well. You're only as good as the team that you're working with, really. That's very true. That's they're, very set, true. they're setting the tone for you, aren't they? They're setting okay. the atmosphere, the mood. And you, you're there to do your job, but you can only do it if you can function. So you need people to enable you to do what you do. If you have someone stopping you, you're not yourself. You look uncomfortable. It's not a great broadcast. You, you see it. I see it loads. I hear it in commentary. There's a lot of commentators who commentate on football rubbish. They're absolutely rubbish. They don't do any homework. Not you, Nigel. You're brilliant. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. That's very sweet. But you quite clearly fell in love with this job at that stage. And, you know, because you were the first female. Why do you think you were the first female reporter on motorsport? Why uh, you... Well, motorbikes. Um, obviously, there was Lou Goodman in Formula One who was doing a cracking job in the pit lane. But Lou, Lou was the first on four, in four wheels. Sure. And I was the first with two. And... Um, to my knowledge, I think I'm the only one that's sort of crossed over and done both paddocks. But um, yeah. I d it's a sad state, really, to say that because it was it was mid '90s, so you would have thought that there would have been women. But I guess it was like football, really. It was it's just seen as a bloke sport, and the girls were there to hold up the boards, to hold the umbrellas for the guys, you know, not taken seriously in sports broadcasters. So. That was all set to change. Well, I mean, I don't know that it has changed really, but the wheels certainly were put in Did motion. Did that make it harder? Did that make it harder? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shouldn't, thought... have done. Shouldn't have done. Yeah, but it does. And there's, two, there's two schools of thought here. I'll be really honest with you. I definitely played to the wearing the leather trousers and, you know, skipping around a bit. I mean, I definitely did that in the 90s because that's sort of how, how it was and it was accepted. Yeah. Um, but also at the same time, I did... I hate this phrase, but I did want people to look at me and think I was a good broadcaster. I wasn't then. I was a young, flighty reporter, and I was still earning my stripes, and it takes years to do that. And I'd like to think that I have done now, after 20 uh, years. Mm. Um, hey, handsome. Um, yeah, but I definitely think, even now, you know, I still get blokes that just dismiss me because I'm a woman uh, you, you can't change people's opinions overnight you can't change generations of thought but there's definitely been people that kind of looked at me a bit strange to start with and then have come over and said lovely things since then which which is you know which is the way it is and I hope that girls coming in now won't have to go through that I think I think now you're just accepted more on a level field although I look at some of the shit that the girls get in football yeah. I think, no, you know, you still got a lot of blokey blokes. And not the majority, of course. It's the minority of vocal people that just like shouting a load of old nonsense. And you're not going to change their opinion, so it's pointless. And... No, it's draconian. It's draconian, Susie. And yeah, I've, it is. I've got a lot of female friends who are broadcasters. But where, what I prefer to do privately, I judge other broadcasters on how I see their ability to do the job. Quite. Um, and I don't care what sex they are, to be honest with you. And, and I've got some really good f friends who are, who are female broadcasters. I, 
you know, I love going to the Molyneux. Uh, you probably know Lindsay Hooper, who does yep. a lot of broadcasting at Molyneux. Um, she's wonderful. She's a lovely lady as well. Um, you know, I've got colleagues on Talk Sport who are great broadcasters who are female. It's just not an issue to me in any way, shape or form. I look at other broadcasters and have formed my own opinions. And I don't give opinions on other broadcasters because I know what a tough job it is. Although I will say both you and Kelv are fantastic. But what I'm saying is that I, I, get, I form my own opinion, not in terms of what sex a person is, but are they a good broadcaster? Are they a good presenter? Are they a good TV reporter or radio? And, and nothing else comes into it for me. It's as simple as that, really, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. You've got really great female broadcasters and you've got some rubbish ones. And the same with men. And that's it. You've got people that can do it, people that can't do it. You've got people that are lucky, that get helped a lot. And you can see it. You know, to me, the good test of a broadcaster is someone that can talk when nothing's going on and hold the public, hold the, the viewers. Oh, Kelf, we have quite an experience of that. I'm <laughs> sure you do. <laughs> we do. We do. We had 50-odd minutes of nothing in Warsaw when there were 55,000 people in the stadium and the riders refused to ride on a very tricky track. And we just had nothing to talk about. Well, we talked with Nigel was at one point report with telling telling the world at large that he was going to go to a, a day at the test match in Nottingham. He was also reporting and giving out uh, reports of second division speedway scores. I mean, it was it was it was TV gold. I just, 50, minute, 50 minutes, 50 of the world minutes of nothing, 50 minutes <laughs> of the world feed with no speedway to talk about. Hey, yeah. listen, boys, I know that you're competitive and I am a little bit as well. I can trump that. Oh, oh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> How about? Why did we get this woman on? How about? <laughs> you know, it did, it, as, much as, as much as there shouldn't be any difference between a, a man and a woman reporting on sport. <laughs> How about five and a half hours, Silverstone, what? not one by contract? Ah, oh, you oh. got rained off in the hottest right. year ever. Yeah, that, that's. That was- that That's when you earn your money as a broadcaster, isn't it? Because yeah. you have to be inventive, whether you're talking about cricket or giving out, you know, scores, whatever. It doesn't matter. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep holding the interest. And uh, that that's, you know, that, that's just, I think, where you earn your bread, when you, when you can was, do that. that. That was an extraordinary weekend because, if memory serves me correctly, it was a warm, long summer. I think... I think... It was just bizarre, and hadn't Silverstone had a, a the, the surface had been yes. and then, and the, and the water was basically wouldn't drain off the track, and I don't know why it didn't go on the Monday. I'm not sure why it didn't run on Monday, but that that event was was cancelled, wasn't it? That was big. Yeah. But they kept they they didn't cancel it in the morning, so we had to go on air, and they kept saying, "Oh, in half an hour this, and half an hour that." So. Our editor, understandably, wouldn't put on, you know, an hour-long VT for us to have a break because they kept mm. thinking that we were going to come back on. So we literally, honestly, we talked for five and a half hours. But the weird thing was, our viewing figures weren't much less than if we'd had actual action on the track. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't can, tell the riders you that. You can look at in both ways there. No, but I think... Th- the great thing is, obviously, we've got a big team at BT Sport for MotoGP. And we've got ex-riders. We've got Colin Edwards we had. Neil Hodgson, Michael Laverty. Um, obviously, we got um, who was in the pit lane. Uh, 
Gavin Emmett was in the pit lane. So we've got great people with full of stories. So, you know, we had loads to talk about. And once again, we could get to the nitty gritty, get under the skin. I could be a nosy old cow and ask loads of questions. <laughs> and, you know, obviously Twitter with these days with social networks, you're getting stuff coming in from the public. And then at one point, Cal Crutchlow rang up and he went, do you want me to go at chat with you it's just absolutely brilliant that you know cal popped up and we had half an hour with cal and it was it was really fun i i loved it apart from being mm. absolutely freezing cold sure. but those kind of things you know they stand out in formula one you know we have uh, hours as well where you, in malaysia where it would rain and the, the guys couldn't go out on track so we'd fail and the key is then having that great team and having those good people around you that you can have the banter and you've got that really good relationship with and I think on television that's when a team really works and people like watching they feel like they're a part of it and they're in the pub with you and that's success for me when it comes to a television show you know that's what Top Gear had with with James Richard and um and the other bloke (laughs) I bet he feels good listening to this (laughs) (laughs) I'm only joking no, no, but Jer- obviously, Jer- you know, I'm a big fan of Jeremy's and I love him. And I just thought their banter, their relationship was really, really strong. Uh, I, think um, that, I think there was a period of time there where they really clicked, didn't they? And Yeah, I, yeah, they I, did. I wondered, I wondered whether it was beginning to run out of steam a wee bit when he got when he got let go but well maybe maybe it was but you know for me it always proves that it's the it's the relationship on screen between people that that drives people in not necessarily the format of a show and um, i think when you're talking about the motor gp team there Suze, i think that comes across very much i think there's no there's definitely you know the banter between keith and neil when they're commentating yourself there's respect and there's a friendliness in that group of people that make it work and because i love it i love the motor gp and I think that uh, I, I can't wait, particularly if I'm flying back from a, a Speedway Grand Prix on Sunday morning. I'm always keen to get back to watch it. And, and it, it's a group of people that are enjoying their work and quite clearly um, have, a, have a giggle with one another as well. Thanks, Calv. I'm really pleased that you said that. Um, yeah, I think it's all, also because we've known each other for the best part of 20, 25 years, all of us. Obviously, I started working at Sky with Keith. Um, I interviewed Neil Hodgson, Colin Edwards when they were racing 20 years ago mm. and, and Gavin, I've worked with Gav, you know, for the last 20 years. So it, it works. It works really nice now. I think we all know our jobs. We all know what our role is. There's no competition. You haven't got anyone biting your ankles for your job. So, you know, there's no backbiting. It's just we all share information and, and it just works. It just works really nicely, and and we we all do really genuinely enjoy it. And the chats that we have on air, we have off air, going home as well. So it sort of carries mm. on. But yeah, what what a dream job, really. Smashing job, and I've got to say that you know this was all going on. But if we get back to when you you joined the BBC, when you joined the BBC and grandstand, and then all of a sudden I sense that you may have had the opportunity to sort of move into daytime shows, sort of mainstream television. Is that correct? Am I right? Yeah, I, took, I sort of had the Nigel attitude of being self-employed <laughs> then. Where, um, yeah, so actually what happened was there was a, a man called Peter Hayton. He used to edit a programme called City Hospital, which was a live show every day at 10 o'clock on BBC One, set in mm. Southampton General Hospital. And he loved the Speedway. And he used to watch and he 
he rang me because he'd seen me on Speedway and he said, do you fancy coming and reporting on the on this hospital programme that we do? And obviously that was massive for me at the time to be working on a on BBC One on a live show and I love live, you know, and he said, I know you can handle it. I like I like how you talk to people. And, and he gave me a break on the BBC. So, you know, suddenly I found myself doing those daytime shows, which led to more sort of primetime entertainment shows and and the gadget show you know on on channel five which i did for eight years which was a big success for channel five um that was loads and loads of fun and then all the time i just kept on doing the bike sport and um i had a few years off uh where i was i was kind of trying to have a family really and i was just never at home so i thought we'd be better to drop something so i ended up dropping moto gp for a few years then i went and did formula one for three years for the b but then i came back to to moto gp and also a bit of speedway obviously because i did the british grand prix um in yeah. cardiff for a few years which was which was fun and a few other of the championships with um nat and and the gang which was which was really great i loved getting back thinking oh my god i haven't done this for 20 years i don't know anything and then i looked at the list half the riders are still the same ones <laughs> <laughs> tell you what, we, yeah, we talk about opportunities. We um, talk about opportunities for reporters. Talk about living the dream. I mean, Natalie. Yeah. Uh, she grew up on the on the Bellevue terraces. She she landed a dream job. I know she would have loved to have joined us on Sky at some stage. It didn't quite happen. Um, so for her to be doing Speedway on BT was fantastic for her doesn't it show in her presentation how she she oh. knows so much about the sport doesn't well, she she's like she's encyclopedic she's absolutely brilliant um she's she's an excellent presenter and when sky asked me to do cardiff i was a bit like well, well it's natalie's gig you know and they said but this is at the time natalie hadn't done that much television and they said look it's it's open it's a massive broadcast we'd we'd just like you know we'd like it if you would come in and do it and i felt a bit awkward about it really because i thought how would i like it if they brought somebody else in to come and do silverstone for example you know Mm. um anyway you did need some consoling i i know i had to chat to her for some time she was gutted you know to be shut up (laughs) kelv Uh, so I, I, she got I, a picture I, of you on something, dartboard yeah. or something that she really <laughs> obviously as soon as I saw her I went over and I had a chat with her and I said look I, I've got to be honest with you I feel a bit awkward about this because this is your gig I want you to know I'm, I'm not looking to do any more or take this gig away from you because that's what you want to know as a as a presenter <laughs> first of all I know how it works and she said not at all she said this is a big gig and I and I want to learn more before I sort of sit in the hot seat um Good and, and Good she said and you know what I wanted to say thank you and I said what for and she went yeah well when I was I think she said she was about 12. She came up to me at a Speedway meeting and she said, I asked you how I could do your job and you gave me some advice and she said, and I took it and here I am. Brilliant. Well done. Well done. Lovely story. That's a passion yeah. story. Oh. Isn't it? And she, honestly, I had a bit of a tear in my eye. I was like, oh my yeah. God. I didn't, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't really, you don't realise, do you? You know, when people ask you questions, that what an impact that you can have. No. And there's, and there's Nat being gracious as ever. And obviously now completely handles the whole caboodle and he's brilliant at it. Um, and yeah, we, and we are really, really good friends. And I love her and I have a great respect for her. I think she's, I think she's awesome. Yeah. Well is, and I've enjoyed working with her. Um, there's, there's a lot to talk about, Susan. I, I, um, I, I wanted to chat to you about 
your dad because he was a music um, agent and promoter, mm. wasn't he? And I, I think that music plays a big part in your life. And I wondered whether there'd been an, ever been a temptation to actually get involved with the music business. Well, um, I would love to. If I could have, if I had a voice, I would have tried to have sung. I definitely would have wanted to have been in a band, but I'm tone deaf and I've got an awful voice. So that wasn't going to happen. Uh, and I wasn't ded dedicated enough to play an instrument. It was music promotion that I really wanted to get into. And that's kind of primarily what my dad did. So I grew up with him owning an entertainment agency with a few other guys. And they had loads of nightclubs and they managed bands and they were agents for various different bands and comedians and they promoted different bands. So, for example, I'll just give you a bit of a flavour. In the 70s, they promoted bands like David Bowie, Tina Turner, ABBA, you know, anybody that was anybody. They were all over it. So outside of London, um, they were the biggest agents. Right. They were the first people to have a nightclub outside London with a license that would run to two o'clock in the morning. You know, they were kind of pioneers, actually. Yeah, groundbreaking out there. Yeah, they were the groundbreaking. And they brought live music. My dad brought live music to uh, the Civic Hall at Wolverhampton, for example, which was the biggest venue at the time in the town. And it continued for many years afterwards. But it was him that did that, that put the stereo system in, that got the licenses. You know, he, he is responsible for that and did an amazing job. And, you know, so I grew up going to, from a very young age, watching all these live bands with backstage pass stuck on my jeans thinking I was the cat's ass, you know <laughs> um and I, I loved it I love live music and uh it gives me such a great buzz and lots of friends in the music industry now and I've had you know lots of that's why I have music artists on, on the breakfast show as well because I'm fascinated by how they tick right uh, I think I mentioned earlier my godfather was in White State prior to that he was in a band called Trapeze uh, which was a, a fantastic rock uh, blues band that were massive actually in America, much bigger in America than they were over here. So when I was growing up, my dad spent a lot of time in the States touring with Trapeze. And then when they broke up, Glenn Hughes went to Deep Purple, Dave went to Judas Priest and Mel went to Whitesnake. So you can see the calibre yeah. of of trapeze you know they, they were really really good and yeah I did want to go into music promotion that's why I went and did my business degree and I was going to work with a guy called Morris Jones who ran a company called Midland Concert Promotions who looked after all the rock stuff so um the he, he also looked after massive bands like the, the Eurythmics and Simply Red and but ACDC and all the big bands that were at the Monsters Rock Festival at Donington, he started that, you know, he, he was massive. And I, I wanted to go and work with Morris. Uh, but I, I ended up going a different route, you know, and going to live in Japan and, and different doors opened and I, and I took yeah, a that, different path. But It was a bit easier, maybe. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I just think I'm a bit sort of, when a door opens, I have to stick my nose in and have a look. And if I like the look of it, I just walk in. And sure. I, I, I think... Because that rock I'm and not... roll world, that must have been ever so exciting. I mean, you must have been tempted. Oh, yeah, it was exciting. But also, very fine line between success and failure. Right. You can be really living the high... As a promoter, you can be living the high life. You know, you, you've got to pick the right acts for a start off. And you, you need to pick them when before they're massively famous because then they're really expensive and then your margin is only the last three percent of sales for example right. you know so it's 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 quite an, especially at the time it's, it was obviously done differently back in the 80s and the 90s physically going and buying tickets and stuff like that um so it was really interesting to watch but you know my dad would have some really good acts sometimes and they wouldn't they wouldn't break even on it and he'd lose money and and then he'd have something weird like the proclaimers who 
just went to number one and they'd already booked them and, and it sold out and they'd made a fortune on it, you know, and it was just it was just having the nose for it. And I don't know whether I would have had the nose for it, really. My, my dad and, and his company, you know, they did really well and they, they did great things. And the stories that he tells are just magnificent. But it's not showing my dad. He's really quiet. You have to give him a few beers to, to get him going. And yeah. He has to feel comfortable. But the stories that he tells oh, about yeah. Robert Plant and you just just everybody, you know, it's just fantastic listening oh, to him. Uh, yeah, it must be, actually. He must have a story or two. It, it uh, sounds an exciting time. And certainly as a father, you must have been, well, possibly a little bit blasé because those names that you've reeled off are, are, are top draw uh, artists, aren't they? And all of a sudden you're just sort of rubbing shoulders with these people. But I think that makes you realise that everybody's the same, yeah. really. They've just yeah. got a different job. And I, I genuinely think the biggest stars that I've met in the world are the, are the most normal people. And it's the stars sort of on the way up that are kind of looking for something that can be a little bit arsy. Um, so, hmm. yeah, I, I mean, you know, I'm from Wolverhampton. You're always going to be grounded, really. I don't, I don't know anyone that's lost the plot. Look at Bev Knight. She's fantastic. You know, she's one of the great global superstars. She's so normal. And... I love that about her, and she's so talented. It's just phenomenal watching her. She's like a firecracker on stage. She's brilliant. Absolutely one of the greatest artists in the world at the moment, I think. But, you know, you can sit down and have a bag of fish and chips with her. <laughs> brilliant. You, you've appeared on all sorts of shows. Um, and as I said at the beginning, it's, it's a long list. And that type of thing, coming out and going on, on, on mainstream television... You know, as a reporter from initially from motorsport, did you find yourself nervous about that moving into uh, to a different arena, or did you just relish that challenge to sort of uh, come to terms with a different environment and challenge yourself? Because you know, you were obviously being asked about all sorts of general knowledge questions, particularly on the quiz shows. Mm. Um, it must have, and, and the gadget show, for example, that was a long-running show on Channel Five that was very successful, and you must have got yourself, you must have worked really hard to get yourself up to speed or maybe you're really into tech I, I, yeah, tell us about that Calvin's still going that show I know that <laughs> you were on it for 8 years but yeah. was it um, the yeah, same well... when you left <laughs> <laughs> that's another story uh, well I got that show I had to I had to go and uh, cast for that show and I had to, I remember it was so long ago I was talking about the iPod um and how revolutionary it was yeah so that, that that just goes to show but it was a key time to be doing that show because it was the rise and rise of consumer technology yeah and i did i did love gadgets i do love gadgets and i do love technology and i am interested and i do have a brain that can sort of pick those things apart i think otherwise i don't think you'd be able to talk about bike racing in detail and understand how all of that sort of side of thing works so clearly there's a there's a, for want of a better word, um, probably get lambasted for this, but there's a bit of a boy side of my brain, which is dominant. Um, <laughs> so I loved doing that show. I loved the gadget show. I loved the challenges that we used to do, the things and the scrapes we used to get into. And yeah, there was a lot of homework. Of course there was, because you're learning about new things. So, mm. you know, you're constantly researching. And um, at the time, we were getting things first. Now you can read about everything on the internet. So it's a slightly different show. But, we, you know, we, it was groundbreaking and it was fun. And, you know, the guys that put that together were pioneers as well. A guy called Ewan Keel, who um, James Woodruff had put that show together. Fantastic. Um, Richard Pearson, from the, all those guys from North One who I work for now in MotoGP, you know, really 
great insight, really great foresight, and a joy a joy to work with them. I mean, it could be bugger some just to, just to put you know both sides of of the coin out there. So yeah, really hard work to make it look like we're in the pub having a laugh. Yeah. So lots of hours behind it on all shows, really. And in terms of nerves. I get nervous if I'm doing something new, always. Mm. I do, because I want to do a good job. Oh. And, I, and I do suffer with nerves. Um, and I get offered things like mastermind. I think I couldn't cope with it. I couldn't do it. I don't, you know, I, I, I know I might look like I'm not that nervous, but um, <laughs> I often am. Not when I'm, I, I'm not nervous now, obviously, when I'm doing MotoGP or when I was doing Formula One when I got into it. It took me quite a while to get into that um, with, the, with the team that I had. But um, yeah. Yeah, I do. I do suffer with nerves. I was rubbish at exams at school. I used to get projected A's and end up with C's and B's. So it's just an inherent thing. It's 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 almost this stupid will to do so well. And if I just go back a couple of gears and chill out a bit, probably would have been more successful in those kind of things. But ultimately, you can do exams again. You know, it's no big deal. And um, I do try now when I'm when I'm doing the show because my dad gave me the greatest advice he just said take a deep breath and be yourself yeah, yeah it's a good show I'll tell you I, I talk about nerves there Suzanne Kelv um I I I was a bag of nerves at my first football game back in Project Restart so the Premier League had been closed down for 12 13 weeks or 100 and, 104 days I think it was and I did the Aston Villa Sheffield United game for Talk Sport and all day in the build-up to that match I was a bag of nerves because the whole, the eyes of the football world were on that game mm. and the whole of the radio station, I was getting WhatsApp messages and text messages. Can you do this? Can you do that? Can we have you on the news bulletins when you arrive at the ground? Can we have tea news at bang on five o'clock an hour before kickoff? And I was more nervous for that than I have been in many a long year in broadcasting. And I suppose it's not a bad thing. In fact, um, Adrian Durham off our drive time show, messaged me and said I love that you're nervous it shows that you care it shows but it was a huge moment and I was as nervous for that as I think I was for my driving test and my exams at school. it was <laughs> it was unbelievable isn't that weird but isn't that also lovely that you got that message from Adrian and absolutely don't you think in lockdown people have just been more open and more genuine yes. and more honest and you know I interviewed Ty Wolfenden on the breakfast show and he was talking about doing yoga and the bird song in the garden and how he loved it with his family sitting out and being all soft and gentle, which is not he's the changed. side of he's him. He <laughs> <laughs> was lulling people into a false sense of security. <laughs> no, but, it, you know, yeah, I've just seen the other side of people and, and you just talking about that and being open about being nervous. And people just, it's human. It's normal. Mm. It, honestly, it's normal. I've got the game out of the way, Sue's put it that way. I had a nice, uh, I cracked a nice cold can of Guinness out when I got back home in the fridge. Satisfying, isn't it? When you feel as though you've achieved something, you've achieved yeah. a challenge. I mean, we're only a small part, obviously, telling the story of the stars right. that are out there playing. And that's, I think, um, once you understand that, it's it's easier to do your job, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But I, I couldn't have too much to drink because, lo and behold, I was on the breakfast show at 6.35 the next morning <laughs> looking back on the night. <laughs> <laughs> no rest for the wicked, as they say. Fantastic. No, I think that nerves, if you're not nervous, then you're not human. And I think you're absolutely right. If you're not having a few butterflies in your tummy, then you, you don't care. And I think also if you're whatever line of work you're in, particularly in motorsport or presenting or where you're being looked upon to deliver the goods, I think that, that actually that extra adrenaline actually makes you perform better. 
I think without that, I think it, you, you're going to be dull. And, and I think that keeps you sharp and keeps you on top of your job. Um, so, yeah, I can fully appreciate that 100%. Um, just changing tack slightly, Susie, um, you're involved uh, with charities. Um, mm. and that's quite clear that that's uh, close to your heart. There's one particular um, one, it Promised Dreams, that you're involved with. and Fantastic cause. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Nigel. Thanks, Carl. Yeah, it is fantastic. You're right. It's, you know, it's for children and families that have got problems um, with illness. It can be something small that they need, like a sensory toy or something. It could be, um, it could be a big dream, like, you know, going to swim with dolphins in, in Florida or whatever. And um, it's, it's helping, helping very, very, very poorly children and, and yeah. families cope with that. And it's fulfilling dreams. I mean, that, that is really what the charity is about. It's been going for um, a long time, I think about 15 years, and uh, has um, ambassadors, uh, patrons, me, Don Goodman, Steve Ball, sort of, you know, into the Wolves footballing uh, field. And they're a lovely charity to work with. And they've, they've helped loads of people. And, you know, obviously, they have lots of different events to try and raise money and, and stuff to keep it going. And it's a hard time for all charities at the moment. Because mm. um, obviously, you know, a lot of people not earning money, and uh, they're having to dig very deep. So I, I love working with them. It's, it's one of my, um, one of my big loves of my life, really. Um, oh, I'll tell you what, what, how good company is Bully and, and Don Goodman? Uh, I'll tell you what, I'm just trying to work out how Kelv would ever understand a word that comes out of Bully's mouth, you know, with his broad tit to accent. He's better now than he used to be, though, isn't he? He is, eh? <laughs> oh, what do you reckon, Suze? Eh? <laughs> would he make, would he make the night, team now? Would he make the team now? I'd have him in my team every day. Oh, he's such a He should have played more for England. He should have played more for England. He should. He should have played more for England. Um, He came on the Breakfast Club and do you know what? He was just diamond. He was brilliant. He's so... He's so full of love, that guy. He does incredible, talk about charity. I mean, that guy just does incredible work for, for Wolverhampton. He's the best ambassador that a town could ever have. Honestly, mm. he's just phenomenal. Um, totally agree. He's a real laugh. Obviously, he was a huge talent in football. And, I mean, rare, a rare gem because he was just so loyal to the club and still is. And he was and there, the wasn't he? About last it, night. West Bromwich Albion got rid of him as a kid. What's that all about? Brilliant. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> and him and him and Tomo together a great company and and Don Goodman and Don Goodman's such a brilliant commentator on Sky one of the best yeah and I like Don Goodman superb broadcaster I mean you know I I, I have to be careful what I say because obviously I'm contracted to BT Sport with some cracking commentators on Sky but I really love listening to Don because I just think he talks so much sense he gives you, you so much behind the scenes because you know, you can see what's happening. You don't want somebody to tell you that. You want you want the insight. You want the nuggets of gold, the stuff you don't know. That's what you want to hear about. And, you know, Don is just a mine of that information. He's he's superb, but yeah. really fun. Yeah, really fun. I know it, guys. And I know it was a long while ago that, that Don played Kelv, but and you probably don't remember Don Goodman Kelv, not just because of... Not because it was a long while ago, but the fact that he, he was never a high-profile Premier League superstar. Right. Mm. Um, but he had a lot of pace. He was so quick al- uh, along the ground. Um, and another like Steve Bull and Tomo uh, have got both Wolves and Albion in common as their former clubs. And uh, I just, I still to this day, I can't believe West Brom got rid of Bully. I mean, that is, that is shocking. Yeah, that's, that's put me in a bad mood now. Oh, what a well, shame. What a shame. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the thing was as well, he was doing quite well for them. I can't understand. He thought he'd had a good time and he got called in and he thought, oh, you know, I'm going to get a bit of praise here. And they went, right, you're off down the road. No, he scored two goals against Ipswich. I was in the Birmingham Road end with a load of pals. 
and he scored two goals against Ipswich Town. And then apparently the, the, the apparently the story goes that he's he's called into the man Tom Tomo's queuing up with him. Bully's yeah. called in. He's called into the manager's office, and the manager says, "Well, wolves are wolves have come in for you. There's a club coming coming for it. It's wolves down the road." So we, we've given him permission to speak to you. So Bully leaves the office, closes the door, and Tomo says, "Where are you off?" And Bully says, "Wolves are coming for me." And Tomo laughed apparently, and Bully said, "I don't know what you am laughing at. You am coming and all." Yeah. That's wow. exactly it. And, and they jumped into their old, I can't remember, an old escort or some Cortina or something, and drove down to the Molyneux, which at the time was broken. Yeah. It was desolate, you know. It was falling down and there was water pouring in the change rooms. It was a real mess. They had to trade in the car park using sweat tops as the goalposts. I'm not kidding. That is exactly what they were it's up exactly against. Yeah. Appalling wages. And look what they did. They re- rebuilt the club. Fantastic. Magnificent. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. Happy days. I, I yeah. have some affinity to the charity a little bit because um, um, you, obviously you're, you're talking about helping children and uh, we have an autistic child. So, um, oh, yeah. so that side of things, I, when you looking at the bio, I thought, yeah, I can, I can certainly identify with that. And this lockdown with people in, you know, with disabilities, mm. special needs, it's been particularly difficult. So, um, I can identify and certainly sympathise with uh, helping people in those roles. And it, it will be, after coming out of this pandemic, will be very important for people to continue to dig deep and help because um, it's affected some of those people quite uh, significantly. So, yeah, I, I, I admire the fact that you're helping people in that area. It's brilliant. Really well, that's that's a really good point, Calvin, though, as well, because I think, you know, often you see these stories and you, you obviously your heart goes out, but it's also the it's so heartbreaking for the families and mm. um, and friends around. And it's such a full time job. And that's, you know, where we try and help out as well. So, um, that's lovely. yeah, that's really, it, lovely. that's really lovely. You did a you did a documentary for the BBC, which is went down very well, which was Queens of the Road. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I did. Um, do you want to know about that? If you want, you know. Are you bored yet? You can leave it there if you like. No. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so this production company in Ireland uh, rang me and said, have you ever been to a road race? I said, you know what? I haven't. He said, how do you feel about it? I said, well, I've sort of in two minds, really, like most people. Like half of me is really glad that they're allowed to do it in this nanny state that we sort of live in. And... The other half of me is terrified and I can't understand why they would do it. Why would you race at that speed around a road when people get killed? I I don't get it. So he said, do you want to come over? Uh, There's three amazing women that raced with the guys. Uh, We'd like you to meet them and have a chat with them. And we'd like to just put a sort of hour doc together. So I said, yeah, it'd be fantastic. So I I rocked up in Cookstown and obviously it's like going back to grassroots motorsport. With, with little tents in the oh, in the paddock brilliant. and everybody putting all their money they earn into getting there that weekend and not the women, you know, not getting the head and not getting the nails done because all that money goes into fuel or bits for the bike or whatever. Yeah. It was just really interesting. Sure. And um, they said to me, right, off you go, here's a camera. And they just let me wander around the paddock talking to people. And it was fantastic and they listened and then they would say right could you just say a bit about how you feel about this or how you feel about you know how, how do you feel as though the girl you know now she's racing now what you think what are you thinking and they put this doc together and it was gritty 
and because uh, they also made Road, which is a phenomenal documentary. I don't know whether you've seen that about the Dunlop dynasty. Anyway, it's it's just I, really I, really good. I've seen some of that, and that that is fabulous. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Road, Riders, and Queens of the Road. These are the, these are the sub- three of the bike docs that they've made in a really really clever Very way that they do it. And I loved working with them, called Double Band. And I just I was mesmerised by what I was seeing, and I couldn't get enough of talking to the girls because I was trying to work out why what made them tick and ultimately it came out that they were just obsessed and so passionate about racing on the road and I still don't understand it but I completely respect it and I don't think it's mad I think it's highly skillful Mm. Um, and that's what sort of came out of that documentary and and bizarrely BBC put it on at 7 or 7.30 and I thought, oh, this is a bit niche for that time of day. You know, it's not going to get the figures they want. And then they're going to say, oh, it didn't, you know, it didn't attract blah, 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 because my bike's a minority. You know, we hear it all the time, don't we? Yeah. And it did really well. And it was sort of very highly acclaimed within the television industry. And it gets repeated a lot. And it's really interesting to watch the girls it's just really a uh, kind of one-off thing you know and road racing obviously is very niche but fascinating just i mean i talked to john mcginnis on the breakfast club and he, he's just mad he is mad not he's to do what he does but he's just mad yeah. um, but very funny uh, very witty got great stories yeah. and obviously just a sensational rider yeah, so-, so yeah i enjoy i love making docs calv um that's that's my thing really i'd like to make more documentaries in the future about people i like talking to people so chat show. Um, a chat show i feel i feel you fancy that I do, but, you know, it's not going to happen on mainstream telly. They don't want it. I've been asking to do it for years and they're not interested. And I just felt really disillusioned with mainstream television in the last few years. I just seem to be very safe churning out mediocre television for people that don't want to think about anything, apart from stuff on BBC Four um, and the natural history stuff that comes out and some great dramas. I mean, I honestly don't really watch anything else other than sport. Mm. So... um, yeah, I think you know. Look at other platforms. So that's what I'm doing. And uh, if it's if it's, I've put it all on YouTube now. I'm going to see what I can do with that. And if that's where it sits, fine. Good on you. Good on you. Um, I've got to talk to you about your love of animals as well. Your your charity work is obviously fantastic. But you you have this two sides to your character, effectively, where your your work ethic is is strong and you're driven. But um, there's a soft side to you as well. I think. Well, I think there's only a soft side to me, but. Anyway. <laughs> No, I know people have this image that I'm kind of driven and strong. And I think, do you know what? I think I am probably quite a strong person, well, but I'm also incredibly... You, you wouldn't have got through that, that amount of work and achieved what you've done without having a sense of determination. It's, it, it just wouldn't have happened. Well, yeah, because you get sort of, you know, lots of punches in the face along the way and knockbacks and you have to not take them personally and pick yourself up, dust yourself off. As my dad said, take a deep breath put one foot instead of in, in front of the other and, and keep going. And that's sort of been my ethos really for the last 25 years, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I just always feel like I'm 27 and I've got the same mates that I had when I was at school predominantly. 
I've, I'm obsessed with animals. I love, I've got loads of cats at home. Um, if I was home more, I'd have dogs as well. I love animals. I love gardening. I love growing stuff. I love doing <laughs> flower arranging, cooking. I love cooking, entertaining. Um, I'm a big softie. I mean, I've, at the moment, one of my cats is quite poorly. And so I've moved my bed downstairs so I can sleep near him and be up for him if he needs me. Um, so, yeah. There's I mean, commitment I, for you. Archer. Yeah. I'm not I, sure I've got, I would. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got an affiliation with animals. I sort of, I've, I imagine if I'm that animal, you know, and um, I've gone to just feel, I can just sense things with them. I don't know what it is. It's a heightened animal sense that I've got. And I, all animals, birds, whatever it is. I was the, I was the girl at school that you'd take an animal that had been run over on your way to school back to her house. You know, I was the person that always had a pigeon in my summer house or uh, a max or a rat or whatever it was. I was constantly <laughs> saving animals and I'm still the same now. You know, I've got at my house here, I have animals turning up all the time. It's bizarre. I mean, my, ne- my neighbours have got goats and sheep and donkeys and all sorts, which kind of stray into my garden sometimes. But <sighs> there's, there's all sorts of things that turn up here and it's just I love it. It's fantastic. Yeah, smashing. I, I sense uh, it's been lovely talking to you, but I, I want to do to, to ask you: Do you, you seem to have a fantastic rapport with Valentino Rossi? Uh, I've watched some of your interviews with him, and I think you get more from him than a lot of people do. And I, I, I don't know if I'm mistaken in that because I don't speak Italian, so I'm not quite sure how open he is with the Italian media. But there's no doubt that when you speak to him and you. You spoke to him not that long ago, uh, mm. and I saw it. It was a really good interview. Oh, uh, thank you. I think I wonder whether it's because I've known him for such a long period of time, and I've never ever stuffed him in terms of, you know, tried to catch him out or um, just just led him up the wrong path. I mean, he's wily, you know. He's he's I'm say, he smart must be guy. quite guarded. He must be. He, well, of course. I mean, this is a global superstar with more charisma than you can, you know, shake a stick. I put him in the same category as James Hunt, Barry Sheen, um, George Best. Right. There's not many of them. No. But when someone walks into a room that has that kind of energy that Valentino has, you know it, even if you've got your back to him. That's the only way I can describe it. And when I'm interviewing him... He makes me feel like I'm the only person in the world, if that makes any sense. Right, yeah. You know, he looks me right in the eye. He's very open. He's very direct. We have a laugh. Yes. Um, but I have known him for 23 years, 24 years. I've known him. I mean, he couldn't speak English when I first interviewed him. And he used to use me and the BBC in the paddock as a little bit of a proving ground for his new ideas, I think. So he, he trusted us with the way that we would put the interview out. And I genuinely think sometimes when he said stuff in the Italian press, they would mix things up and, you know, make headlines out of things that shouldn't have been headlines, misquoting, basically. Right. I think that happened quite a lot. And we never did that. And I never did that. And he knows that. And so, you know, he used to say stuff to us that was groundbreaking. And if, if the UK had been big into bikes, it would have been headline news because Gazetta de la Sport were constantly taking quotes that he'd quoted in our interviews and, you know, using them as, as their sort of bylines. Right. Um, so I have got a good relationship with it. I like him and I think he likes me, you know. He, he knows I've been around for a long time. You. He must trust you. It is trust, yeah. I think it's an inherent trust between the two of us. And... Um, I like That's, it. I like it because he... It's comfortable, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's cool because 
you know, quite often you don't get enough from him. You just get these snippets and he's smiley and he plays that game. He's been a wonderful competitor and a wonderful rider. But, you know, you want to know the man. You want to get, you know, that, that mm. story from him. And I obviously, I, I as I say, I, I'm not privy to the languages that he speaks. So it's impossible to understand it. But when I just sense that he's comfortable when he talks to you and he, he, he speaks from the heart. I think so. I think he does. And I just think it's a time and a trust thing. Uh, for you know for over the years we've just always got on and we don't have um overly personal relationship you know I don't have his phone number we don't meet up or have dinners or I mean, I'm not saying that in a romantic way but we, but we, we never have yeah I've always kept my relationship with all riders and drivers strictly professional despite millions of rumors that have gone around over the years um particularly in the late 90s early 2000s because you know it's my job and um i was very well aware of what people were saying and as annoying as it was i knew that they weren't true and i think once you overstep the mark you're seen differently um or you can be seen differently certainly you were back in those days maybe it's changed now but um i always wanted to keep everything very very much above board and um yeah, I mean, there's been parties that we've been at and we've had a beer together. And, you know, I remember once being a gang of us in Valentino's hotel room in um, Indianapolis. There's about 10 of us and we drank his minibar dry in about five minutes. Uh, you know, it was it was he's, he's a lot of fun when when, when partying. But um, I don't profess to know him that well personally. Uh, but I, I like him and I and I know he likes me because he's always saying to me in an interview, come to the ranch, you know, and then we try and organise it through his people. And of course, it's bloody impossible. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think in terms of uh, professional status, we both know each other very, very well. Yeah, that's nice, and I think it comes across brilliantly. I, I, um, as I say, there's an awful lot we we can talk about, and but we've covered some good ground there, Sooth. And I, I, I love the fact that you've got this diversity. I, I, I'd like to sort of just kind of wrap it up a wee bit about that because the diversity of work is 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 quite i don't know if it's unique but it's certainly very impressive and i i find that uh intriguing myself because i've sort of stuck to one thing i've been involved in motorsport all my life through mm. through motorcycling and i would have been i don't know if i could have taken on those challenges and you've come you know into motorsport and moved into mainstream and and the variety of what you've got up to has been so impressive and I think that that we, you know, when I looked at the bio, that was something I thought, wow, how have you, how have you come to terms with it? How did you do that? I don't know. <laughs> it's just one of those just sort of rolled out, just sort of happened really. And I, I wonder whether it's um, given me more longevity because it, there have been kind of peaks and troughs of profile, really. And you know how it is in television. Sure. You know, you're only talked about for 12 months and then you, you're a has-been. And I've not got jobs because people have said that I've been too old. I've lost jobs. I've been replaced by younger, prettier girls. Um, I don't think I've ever been re replaced by anybody that is more knowledgeable or a better broadcaster than me. And I hope that doesn't sound big-headed. No, no, you're backing your own ability and I agree with it. That, that's my, well, you've got to have that confidence, otherwise you wouldn't do this job, I suppose. But, you know, it's a fickle industry. It can be a short, I know loads of great broadcasters that just aren't working anymore. And I think, God, how come I'm still working? I'm, I'm lucky, but, you know, also I, I have obviously worked really hard, but there is an element of luck to that. But I think the things that I chose to do were all things that I really wanted to do 
and things that I thought I could do. Um, but yeah, I just kept, I stuck to the core of the motorsport, just kept that going. And, you know, people were around me at the time going, you need to drop that now and you need to be doing this primetime show and that primetime show. And I thought, yeah, but you're just standing there reading somebody else's words on an auto cue. That's not broadcasting. That's television presenting. Right. And that's Absolutely. not what I like doing. I mean, it's a, don't get me wrong, there's a thrill. Like if somebody said to me, right, we want you to go and present... Um, I don't know, Strictly, which would never happen, but let's just pick that because it's a current big show. Right. Great. You know, amazing. Amazing profile you get there. You get all these spin-offs, you get all these corporate, you get loads of money. Right. But are you, what are you doing, really? I don't know. It just, it didn't, it, ultimately, I've, I've sort of flicked through these shows and most of the stuff that I've done has been live. If you, yeah. if you look at all the things that I've done, it's very rare that I did pre-recorded shows. Gadget show was, but we filmed it as live. We, we did do many retakes. And um, certainly all the challenges and stuff like that was all, all really live. Um, and I think that's what I get off on, really, the live stuff. So that's what I've tried to do. I haven't done as much radio as I would like to have done. You know, that's something maybe for the future. Or maybe it's podcasting, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see. But I know this I've, is... I know this will be a lovely listen. There's no question about that because of uh, of, of all the di- all the different things you've got up to. But I think the live experience. Um, I don't have anything like the experience of television. Obviously, I've just done the speedway, but I I I just I I really get it's as close to racing as I possibly can get. You know, I was very fortunate to have retired and walked into that job with Rory and the Sky team. And just particularly when I started commentating, I loved it, you know, just getting ready. And when, when the producer or the director would go, go commentators, that's just like the green light coming on at a speedway start for me. And I love that. And um, I've been missing it this summer. No doubt about it. I don't know about mm. nice. Do you feel the same about that? Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, we're going to be rusty, aren't we, when we do the first one? I mean, mm. um, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited about uh, getting on air doing speedway again. Um, you know, thankfully, I've, I've, I've been doing the football, uh, darts, but obviously the, the speedway is, is the one that I've really missed here now. And, uh, yeah, I guess I'll be nervous again like it was with the first <laughs> You know, speedway is so adrenaline-packed, isn't it? What a great sport. I mean, for, for people that go and watch it and watching on TV, four laps, short, sharp, exciting, no breaks, stuff happening, controversy on and off, you know, when the when the... The, the tapes go down. It's just brilliant, isn't it? I mean, I I still love watching. I, I don't watch as much as I used to because I don't really have as much time, but I, I love it still. And, you know, when I was talking to, to Ty again, it kind of it always reignites my love for that sport. And I sort of part of me wishes that it was bigger um, than it is. But then another part of me thinks, no, because it's elite. And in, in, a, in its own way, it's like a cult following. And that's cool for the people that love it. They really love it. Yeah. You know, it's not about corporate being seen. It's about loving the racing and really appreciating what those talented girls and guys are doing on track. And the passion is, is just extraordinary. And I think it goes throughout all bike sport, that passion. It's really visceral and real. And, you know, I'm glad to hear that you said that 
it kind of fills that hole of adrenaline for you because obviously we'll never know what it's like to stand on a podium to to win a race or anything like that we know what it's like to unearth some tv gold to do a cracking interview to have a laugh on air to feel if it if that's what it is successfully for 50 minutes or whatever you know that's our podium those are our winning moments so to hear you say that it kind of if i'm sure it doesn't you know can't equal that of course it can't in terms of adrenaline but to go some way to filling the hole is it's good to know that cal thank you uh that's kind of you to say because uh, it, it genuinely does i know that when we've been at grand prix where the action has been thick and fast and you've got some of the best guys in the world going at it conditions are right um there are some races that literally in 60 seconds take your breath away and then when you reflect on it later relaxing that is that is as i say as close to being in it actually competing in it as i possibly could and i feel quite lucky and fortunate that i've been able to you know continue to work in the sport in that way it's been really cool it's been really cool and it's been it, you know it's been it's been an experience i never ever expected to have i mean i <laughs> never dreamt never dreamt when i turned up with a with a particularly poor jumper on at king's lynn um, and in the upside down underpants, I, I can't imagine that 20 odd years. Well, later, some things don't change. Though, the, do they? You know, I mean, the, the, the privilege of being able to go along and talk about it. Quite incredible. Hey, and don't, don't you think as well, that time, um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but it might just be me with rose um, tinted sunglasses on. <laughs> do, do I, was I part of a real kind of golden era of Speedway? Because it felt like it at the time when you look back at the names that were there. It was a particularly good time. The, the league over here was much more competitive than it is now. Yeah. Um, we had a lot of more foreign yes. names in, didn't we? Yes. Big names. We had some big, big names riding here. It was still looked upon as the best league in the world. And the World Championship also was very, very competitive with some superstars. You know, Tony Ricardson hitting, yeah. hitting the numbers and Ricardson riding here, which was wonderful. And yes, yes. Crumpy, Mark Lauren. You know, it was a special time. Yeah, I loved it. You loved it. Crumpy. Susie, thank you very much for your time. It's been yeah. smashing, you know, and uh, listening to your stories. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. very much appreciated. Oh, listen, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for asking Fantastic. me. And um, of course, I was always going to do it, really. <laughs> <laughs> Up the walls, walls a week. Hey, listen, guys, good luck when you get back, when the speedway comes back. Up and the, I hope up it goes the walls, really well. Up the walls. And um, yeah, just, uh, you know, loads of love out there to anybody that's listening this, that follows the speedway. And um, thank you for having me in your world for a while. And I've still got one eye on it. So enjoy. And to any riders, uh, good luck. Have a great season. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Well, Nigel, that was uh, spectacular. Um, I think listening to Susie Perry, who we um, had uh, the great pleasure of working with in the late 90s, but just looking at her career, hearing about how enthusiastic she has been and the diversity of what she got up to and still retains enthusiasm. You can hear in her voice how passionate and how um, uh, full of energy she still is. And oh, yeah. That's encouraging, isn't it? No, it's fantastic. And she is such a genuine, genuine person. I mean, I, I know people in the media who are high profile who struggle to give you the time of day. It really, it's a massive effort for them to lift their arm up and wave at you. Right. Uh, 
somebody like Susie, she's fantastic. Uh, she's um, wonderfully enthusiastic, uh, you know, and, and, and for me, she's just great to talk to. And she's still clearly, clearly very, very fond of her time in Speedway. Yeah, and that's lovely to hear. And I think for the Speedway fans that will listen to this, I think that will be refreshing because she's very well remembered. You know, she was only involved for a couple of years, but they were groundbreaking years. It was chaotic, as we explained, but it really was the moment that Speedway burst back onto the TV cameras. And she was played a big part in that. She became quite a star on the show. There's no doubting that. Yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't joined the team uh, by then. I, I started three years later and... You know, it's a, it's a, it is a slight regret of mine that I wasn't able to really, uh, you know, work with her like you did, Kelv. Uh, mm. But she we, we she was brilliant. And... Yeah, absolutely. And, and she, lovely words for Natalie from Susie as well, which I thought was fantastic. Yeah, um, that was quite touching, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And we, and and Susie and I still send messages to each other, um, direct messages to each other, you know, ribbing each other about our respective football clubs. So, you know, uh, she's a winner on that at the moment, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> can't argue against Wolves at the moment. No, you can't. Great stuff. And, um, you know, she's she's done really well for herself. And I think it's important as well, the point I made, that when I when I look at other broadcasters, Kelv, I form an opinion on their on merit, on their broadcasting ability. I don't care about what sex they are, to be honest. Oh. She, she is fantastic. Yeah, I think it's a very valid point. And uh, she's certainly broken some barriers and burst through. And hopefully she's blazed a trail for, for young women to, to move into broadcasting, particularly in male-dominated in, environments. So fair play to her. And she's been a great success. And we are, um, I know that I'm chuffed to bits that she agreed to come on. And it was, it's been super. So thank you very much, Susie. It was a yeah. great time that um, we, we've had together there. Brilliant. Yep, superb. Enjoyed it. And on to the next one, Kelf. Look forward to it. Absolutely.